All right, grab your Bibles, Mark chapter 7. Let's get into it. If you're joining us, we're teaching through the book of Mark, verse by verse. And it's been a great journey so far. Yeah, Father, bless this time in your word. We pray, may we glorify your son, Jesus. Amen. There's not a lot of things in this world, I think, that are more puzzling or more confusing or more interesting than the complexity of a human being. Would you agree? <laughs> uh, humans are mixed bags. Humans have the ability to produce and to really do some of the most beautiful and amazing things in the world, create art, love our children, serve one another, show kindness. Humans have a capacity for great good, don't they? Humans have a capacity to do really good things. But there's a simultaneous reality that all of us have to deal with, and that is that parallel to those good things runs a severe capacity for evil. Human beings have a real capacity for evil. Anyone that disagrees with that is not being honest with themselves, right? We live in a globally connected world where every day we wake up to bad news. And usually that bad news is connected to the evil that has come out of a particular person. It's become so normal to hear about shootings and the news. It's become so normal. There was a stabbing here in Grants Pass apparently last night at a bar. Someone was stabbed to death. Human evil is all around us. It's pervasive and it's confusing, isn't it? How can people do such evil Things I'll, I'll never forget the time I was working. I was working in a secular environment as a retail store, and um, this this young man that I was working with, he knew I was a Christian, and he uh, he had this really, really, really rough morning because the day before, you see, was the, the Sandy Hook Elementary. Do you remember that? Uh, we all woke up to that, and we were sick in our stomachs, right? That this this kid went into a, an elementary school and took the lives of all of these young children, um, and of course, all of us that had kids were just thinking, "Oh my gosh, what would I do if that was my kid?" And you're just asking yourself, like, how could this happen, right? And I remember working with this young man, and he asked me, knowing I was a Christian, he was not. He said, "Hey, how am I supposed to think about this? I don't understand. How could somebody possibly do that?" The cool thing was I had an answer for him. I had an answer for him because there are answers to the question of human evil. Our world, our culture has really done a lot of work to try to explain this phenomenon, this phenomenon of human evil. Uh, modernism, really from the, the Renaissance to the Enlightenment era, modernism has done its best to try to explain this. And they've tried to explain it with evolution, right? Right? See, the problem really, they would say, the problem isn't that humans are evil. The problem is that human environments are evil, see? And really the problem is it's just, it's just hunger and starvation and lack of, of substance. And these, this is what leads people to do these kind of wicked, terrible things. And the answer to the human dilemma of evil is that our species, our culture needs to outgrow it through evolution, so with the turn of the century, right, and all of this information, the information age and the sciences and all of these things, the idea was that we were going to outgrow human evil. And that was a great idea until one of the most civilized, Western, scientifically astute countries in the world committed one of the worst egregious things that's ever happened in human history, namely the Holocaust, we watched as the modern civilization of Germany killed six million Jews 
and, and did all kinds of gnarly things. And that really, that really kind of messed up this idea that maybe humans are basically good. And it's just our environments that are evil. Maybe, you know, it's one of the things that's most puzzling to sociologists and, and, and philosophers is that how does somebody grow up in a really nice neighborhood with just the right parents and all the right things and everything that they need and they still grow up and end up doing some egregious, terrible thing? How does that happen? How does that work? Could it be that maybe our environments are actually not what create human evil? Where are we at now in our world? Now we live in this kind of hodgepodgey view where even though we know it seems like the environment doesn't ensure that someone will be good or bad, we still like to believe that people are basically good, right? And we're in post-modernity, which says, hey, believe whatever you want. Truth is relative. So even though all the evidence points to the opposite, I'm just going to choose to believe that people are basically good because I like to believe that because it makes me feel good. What is the answer to the human dilemma? Well, you know, I just like to believe in humanity, I think humanity, at the end of the day, is really good. And I think humanity is going to grow out of our sin and our carnal, animalistic, fleshly tendencies to kill each other, rob each other, steal from each other, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. What is the root of the human dilemma? That is the question that we need to wrestle with this morning. Now, the question I would add to that is, did Jesus talk about this kind of stuff? I mean, wasn't Jesus just kind of this, like, happy, squishy sage that just kind of walked around hugging people. He just never talked about that kind of stuff, right? He didn't talk about evil or sin or hell or darkness or any of that hard stuff, right? Well, actually, Jesus talked quite a bit about this stuff. And actually, Jesus had quite a bit to say about evil and where it's sourced, where it comes out of, what it comes out of. He had a lot to say about the human heart. What we're going to look at this morning, you could call it a hamartological survey from the Greek word harmatia, which is sin. Really, our passage this morning is a survey of sin. Where does it come from? Where does this evil come from? Jesus is going to speak to that. You know, Jesus was the great physician, so he understood the entire makeup of the body biologically when he would heal, um, he understood the complexity of the human eye. He understood the complexity of the human legs. He understood the complexity of the internal organs. And as the great physician, he would heal physically. But listen, Jesus was also the great physician in that he understood the soul. He understood the spiritual makeup of a human being. He would stand before someone and he would not only see the sickness of their legs that didn't work, he would see the sickness of their heart. We could say that Jesus was the great cardiologist. He understood the chambers of wickedness and the depth of the human heart. And he saw through people like the rich young ruler who from the outside really appeared to have it all together. And he saw into the chambers of his heart and he saw the wickedness that laid inside, that he loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. So really this morning we could call this sermon, and we're calling this sermon Cardiology. We're going to talk about the makeup of the human heart, and we're going to learn from the teacher of teachers. We're going to learn from the one that understands not only the heart from a biological standpoint, but the heart from a, a spiritual standpoint. And we're going to ask hard questions about evil, where it comes from, and what we do with it. You ready? Let's get into it. We're going to get a running start this morning. We actually left off in chapter 6, verse 53. So let's just start there and get a feel for where we're at. Now, you remember in our text last week, Jesus fed the multitudes, the 5,000 across the sea. And after he fed the multitudes, he sent his disciples on a boat 
Um, without him, he went up into the mountains to pray, to get alone with the Lord, and the disciples were just struggling against the wind, trying to get across. They were having to row. They weren't making much headway. <laughs> and so Jesus comes walking on the water out to them, intending to pass by them without them seeing him. And then Jesus, or they happen to see Jesus. They think he's a ghost. They're terrified. He reveals himself to them and says, don't be afraid, it's me. And of course, from Matthew's account, there's a whole lot more to that story. Peter ends up popping out of the boat and says, can I come to you, Lord? And he does. He begins to sink. You guys know the story. Jesus gets in the boat. The wind flattens and ceases, right? And they're, they're extraordinarily amazed. Extraordinarily amazed. Well, now they get to the other side. Verse 53, chapter 6. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they had heard he was. And wherever he came in, villages, cities, countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. As many touched it were made well. So the disciples end up kind of off course here a little bit. Instead of getting back to Capernaum, where they were probably trying to get, they end up a little further south into Gennesaret into a different area, and they recognize Jesus, and once again, we have the crowds coming, people begin to get healed, and this is almost a summary for Mark of what's basically going on in the day-to-day -day life of Jesus and his disciples. People are getting healed. Now, let's get into today's text, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, now, just stop there for a minute. What we have is we have Jesus' popularity is growing exponentially. Uh, more and more and more people are getting uh, healed and in, in, in proximity to him. Uh, when he fed the 5,000, it's probably more likely that was about 20,000 because the 5,000 only accounted for the men. So the crowds are huge. And because the crowds are huge and the word is out about the fame of Jesus, word has spread up the ladder up to the big boys. And where do the big boys live? Where do the big religious leaders of the day live? They live up in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center, really, for Judaism. And so the, the top Pharisees, the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, they really stationed themselves in that area. And because Jesus' fame has grown so much, now they're sending the bigwigs down to deal with this Jesus because he has become a threat to the system, as we'll see. Verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, the good news for us is that Mark wrote this gospel to Gentiles, like you and me. So he doesn't assume that you're going to understand exactly what he's talking about. He takes the time, you'll notice my Bible has parentheses here, he takes the time to explain what he means by this unwashed hands, this defiled hands. So look at what he says. He said, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Don't know what a dining couch is? I didn't have time to look that up. Doesn't really matter. Okay. Uh, probably a couch that you dine on, right? Uh, just a thought. You know, I didn't have to look at the Greek to figure that out. Okay. So Mark gives some commentary here as to what it is that the, the Pharisees are so scandalized by, and that is that the disciples, not all of them and not Jesus, but some of the disciples were choosing not to take part in a particular ceremonial cleansing. Now, the word cleansing or the word washing of hands, in the Greek, it actually, if you, my, my Bible has a note that points out that it actually has the word fists in it. 
So this isn't an open washing the, the germs for hygienic purposes of, uh, of the insides of your hands. They're not really thinking about that. They're thinking about ceremonial. So this was probably the pouring of water onto possibly your fist or perhaps your cupped hands. This was a ceremony. This was a tradition. Well, where did the tradition come from? Okay, where did the tradition come from? The tradition really came back to the day of Ezra and Nehemiah. When the Pharisaical tradition began, you see, Israel was exported from their land. They spent 70 years in Babylon for idolatry and a lot of other sin that they were living in. And when God finally brought them back into the land, they said, you know what? Let's make sure we never break the law again. So let's build a giant fence 50 feet from the law. And let's make sure that we never even get close to breaking the law. It's always a bad idea, right? Let's, let's make God's word something that it isn't. So they did. They built this fence, if you will, around the law, and it was called the tradition of the elders. 200 years after Jesus, it was collected into something called the Mishnah. Have you heard of the Mishnah before? This massive collection of all the writings and all the traditions of the Pharisees that were passed down uh, verbally and orally tradition uh, from, from year to year. Uh, MacArthur, John MacArthur notes in his commentary that, that the Mishnah had 30 chapters on washing. 30 chapters on how to ceremonially wash things, okay? That's a lot. He notes that there's a whole volume on hand washing, just in case you didn't know how to do it. It's really, really, you, you need a whole volume here. There was actually a tradition in the day, like a, um, this, this idea that there was actually some kind of a demon that would, could get on your hands, perhaps when you were out in the market, perhaps you brush up against a Gentile, or you accidentally touch some bacon when you're grabbing something you know, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the market, and this demon would get on your hands, and if you were to bring your hands to your mouth without getting rid of this demon through this classic ritual, then you would be defiling yourself and defiling God. This was sort of the, the, the deep, confusing tradition of the day. These Pharisees, they have nothing better to do than to sit around writing volume after volume on how exactly you're supposed to ceremonially wash your hands. That's why Jesus said, if you remember, that you guys strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You obsess over the little things, all the while you're hypocritically taking in the big things. That's why Jesus was getting at there. So knowing that now, look at verse 5, the question. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. Now, of all the things that the Pharisees could have asked, right? I mean, they're watching people be raised from the dead. Jesus just multiplied uh, a couple of little mini muffins, remember we talked about, and, and, and turned them into enough food for, for 20,000 people. I mean, Jesus is, is giving people sight from the blind. He's doing incredible works. And their question is, how, how come some of your disciples don't wash their hands according to our traditions? Are you kidding me? That's the, that's the thing you're going to ask Jesus. You know, when you're, when you're determined to discredit Jesus, and many are, have you noticed? When you're determined to discredit Jesus, you'll stop at nothing. And usually you take aim not at Jesus himself, because he's pretty hard to actually defeat. You take aim at his disciples, I mean, how many times have you heard that? Like, yeah, Christianity, I don't know. I know some Christians, man. I know some Christians, and I don't know. They're, they're not really the real deal. So Jesus, he's got to be nothing, right? They're really doing the same thing. They're writing off Jesus because they see his disciples as doing something that in their estimation is not okay. These guys, like, what are these guys? What are these Pharisees? These Pharisees are really, I was thinking about this week, they're, they're kind of like an autoimmune disease. Do you know what autoimmune disease? It's where your body starts attacking itself, thinking that it's a disease, 
It's a real problem. So the Pharisees are attacking the Savior of the world. They're attacking the one who God literally sent, God in the human flesh, to save the world. They're attacking him. And like a cancer, you know, a cancer will kill the body to stay alive. Like a cancer is like, it's weird because it's part of your body, but it's not supposed to be there. And it will destroy and take all of the life from your body in order to, to, in order to, to, to save itself. The Pharisees are like this cancer. where They're attacking Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is a threat to their false religious system. And they know it. And they don't want to die. They want their sin. They want their self-righteousness. They want their system that they've made. It's everything that they love. It's everything that they've known. They've passed it down from generation to generation. They spent their whole life getting these degrees and, and getting people to praise them for their outward piety. And here comes Jesus, and he's incompatible with them, right? He's a threat to their system. So like an autoimmune disease, they begin to attack him. They want to see him dead. And of course, spoiler alert, they kill him. That's where it all ends, right? They bring him to the point of putting him on the cross. Verse 6. So here's Jesus' response. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. And he quotes Isaiah 29, 19, pardon me, 13. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Uh, Jesus knew the Bible. And guess what? These guys knew the Bible. They knew the Old Testament scripture. So Jesus pulls this text out of Isaiah 29 from memory, by the way. It's not like he pulled out his pocket Bible. He had it from memory. And he recites this verse from Isaiah 29. And he says, this is true of you. What's Jesus doing there? He's saying that the disposition of Israel in the time that this was written is the same disposition that is true now. If you go back and you read Isaiah and you read the indictments of God against Israel for how they were approaching God and the way in which they were approaching God, it sounds kind of something like this. Let me read it to you. Isaiah chapter 1. Verse 11, he says to Israel, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams. You picture people bringing burnt offerings to God, thinking that they're worshiping God. God's going, I'm good. I've had enough of it. Listen to what he says. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? In other words, your very presence is an abomination to me. Bring no more vain offerings. And it's that word, vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. 14, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. Can you imagine God telling you, hey, everything that you think you're doing to worship me, my soul hates it. They've become a burden to me, he says. I'm weary of bearing them. So no, make no mistake, Jesus quoting this and saying that this disposition of Israel applies to you. The Pharisees are connecting this. And Matthew tells us that they were deeply offended by this, by the way. They were deeply offended by this idea. And Jesus basically says three things to these guys, as we just read. He says, first of all, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. That word um, wasn't entirely pejorative yet at that point, but here's what it did mean. It meant you're an actor. 
A hypocrite was known, it was a word that was familiar at the, in the day as being an actor. It was a phony, someone wearing a mask, someone playing a part, someone who is being intentionally false. He's saying, you're, you're an actor, you're a play actor. You're not the real deal. And he says, your lips and your heart don't match. You ever watch one of those movies where their lips don't match? It's really frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> I was thinking about that, like the spaghetti westerns, you know, where they're like, I need to get my gun and go fight you, you know? Like, what language are you speaking? So God's like, God's watching this worship, and he's like, your lips don't match your heart. Your soul is far from me. You're not even doing this for me. There's nothing to do with me. It's just lip service. And then he says, because of that, your worship is vanity. Your worship is in vain. Your worship is pointless. And then he says, you've, you've been mastered by man's words and man's estimation of you rather than God's. You have elevated the traditions of men over God's word. And you know, Jesus isn't just assuming that. We have literal writings from the Pharisaical tradition that say that to offend the word of the tradition of the elders is a greater offense than to offend the Torah. They literally believed that, that the oral tradition of these Pharisees, the oral writings and commentaries on the word were, were, were more sacred, more sacrosanct than the scripture itself. These guys are really twisted. And Jesus isn't talking about hypotheticals here. He's not just throwing these things out. He's talking about literal things that he was aware of. You know, Jesus knew these guys. He grew up watching the hypocrisy of these guys. He knew the culture. You might think you're fooling somebody if you're being false. You're not fooling Jesus. He sees right through it, right to their backbone. And he gives an example in verse 9 of how their hypocrisy comes out. Here it is. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. In other words, you're lawbreakers. These were the law keepers. These were the guys that were paid full time to make sure everybody kept the law. And Jesus opens his opening statement says, you're breaking the commandment of God in order to preserve the tradition of men. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother, whoever relies Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Where's that? That's part of what's called the Decalogue, one of the Ten Commandments, the most sacred and central commandments of God to his people. Honor your father and mother. And let me just say, by the way, we think about that, and we think about it means like kids obeying your parents. Um, what, what, what Moses is talking about here, what God is doing here, is he's saying that your job is to take care of your parents when they become old, weak, frail, unable to provide for themselves. This was actually a grace, a kindness of God that he stitched into the Mosaic law, into the theocracy, uh, so that as people would age, they would be cared for. Because there was no social security, right? There was no food stamps. There was no social safety net. So God, in his kindness, said, hey, when you grow up, your kids will take care of you. That's why kids were like riches in this day. That's why to not have a child uh, was, was really a big deal. So out of God's kindness, he creates this system where you take care of your parents. And Jesus is saying, look at what he says, verse 11, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, Mark tells us what that means, that is to say, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. What's he saying here? He's saying, you hypocrites, you've taken one of the Ten Commandments of God, 
One of the core, conv- one of the core convictions of my people designed to, to take care of the weak and to, to create a system of justice within this community. And you've actually jettisoned it by saying, well, mom and dad, everything I would have given to you, all the support I would have shown you, actually, that's the Lord's now. Sorry. You've essentially told your mom and dad to go live under a bridge. I serve the Lord. This is not something the Lord is happy about. You know, we, we think about serving God as though that's the most important thing. Oftentimes, serving God looks like doing things like taking care of your parents, feeding your kids. God cares about those things. These guys are hypocrites. And Jesus just nails them with a really specific example. He doesn't leave it nebulous. He doesn't leave room for them to wiggle out of it. He says, I'll tell you exactly how you're hypocrites. He gives them an example. And it seems like they don't respond because we don't really have a record of their response. But we know they were offended. Now, what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is this. Man-made religious systems are perfect spaces for sin to thrive undetected, unchallenged. Why? Because man-made religious systems focus almost exclusively on the externals, right? They focus on the externals. As long as you do the right things according to the culture, they assume righteousness. And Jesus came along and he really flipped this whole thing upside down. He came along and he really flipped this whole thing on, as as we'll see. There's a lot of examples um, from our culture right now uh, of, of systems created by a man that will let you do whatever you want in these areas as long as you do what they say in these other areas. Okay, one of them, woke, progressive liberalism, which is, by the way, a religion. Did you know that? It's a religious system. It's a religious system because, for one, you have to get born again. How do you get born again? You become enlightened. You become enlightened. And once you become born again, then you repent. Well, what do you repent of? You repent of your whiteness, you repent of your race, you repent of your country, you repent of whatever, corporate problem, and then you post really, really, really appropriate things according to this party on your social media page. And that signals that you are righteous according to the religion of woke progressive liberalism. Now, you can abort your baby. You can be a bisexual, homosexual, transgender. You can do whatever you want with your sexuality, As long as you post the right thing at the right time on social media. And if you don't, guess what? You're canceled. This is very pharisaical. Why is it pharisaical? Because it's a man-made religious system. It's a man. I'm not trying to get too political here, but guys, think about it. Seriously. Think about it. It's the same thing. People are trying to find a way to justify their behavior. And the way they justify their behavior is they create cultural norms that if they adhere to them, then they feel justified. Cheat on your wife, leave your wife, abort your baby, whatever, as long as you toe this one line of this one cultural distinctive. What about the other side of the aisle? Here's another example of a man-made religious system. What about the religious system of hyper-fundamental traditionalism? You know, the, the, two, place, the two places in our country where pornography is most, obvious, uh, most, um, most, cur- most commonly downloaded, the Bible Belt and Utah. What do you think? Because those places are hyper-focused on cultural righteousness, outward righteousness. Hey, as long as you're homeschooling your kids, as long as you're wearing a long denim skirt, as long as you're not playing cards, as long as you're coming, you know, as long as you're wearing your polo to church, 
remember one time I went to a church in Wairika, where I grew up, and I was wearing a hat. Oh, no. And this lady in front of me that I knew, she was a meth addict. She had all kinds of problems. She was not a believer. She turned around and she said, you take your hat off, you disrespectful brat. And I thought, wow. This lady's like she's a meth addict. And all she, she, was, she was livid at me for defiling my body with a hat, <laughs> defiling the church she didn't even go to. We were at a con- it was a concert or something. You know, it wasn't a church service. I just couldn't believe it as a Catholic. I was like, this is insane. Okay, but that's what we do. We create these systems where we feel justified culturally because we did the right thing. Well, I don't wear a hat, you know? Well, I don't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, but what do you look like on the inside? And see, Jesus is flipping that all upside down, and he's saying, I don't really care whether you ceremonially wash your hands or not. What's going on on the inside? Now, Jesus is going to tell us what's going on on the inside. Not only do we see the hypocrisy of how sin can live within these man-made religious cultural systems, now we're going to see what the source of sin is. Look at verse 14. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me. So he turns to the crowd. He says, Hear me and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Because that's what you do when you're a true disciple. You ask Jesus, what did you mean by that? And he said to them, you, then you are also without understanding? You do not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. A little note to the Gentile audience. In verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. There was probably a time in our culture where that would be like, yeah, duh. But the irony is that that's really foreign to our cultural Matrix. And it was really foreign to the culture that Jesus spoke it into. Because see, here's the thing. The culture that Jesus lived within, they were a culture of piety through prohibition. They were a culture that saw themselves as righteous because of what they didn't do, didn't touch, didn't come near. Very similar to hyper-religious cultures, right? Yet what makes you pure is what you don't touch, not only that, but they assumed, for the most part, as long as you were a Jew, they assumed some level of righteousness. You're, pretty, you're basically good. You're only bad if something from the outside spoils you, taints you. You accidentally have some bacon on your, your hamburger. That's going to defile you, right? It's going to spoil you. So Jesus is being very edgy here. He's being very culturally opposite when he comes in and says, actually, it's completely backwards. You're not defiled By eating an unclean animal, you're defiled when your heart is allowed to defile you. It's quite opposite. Now, is Jesus contradicting the purity laws of God's word? No. What is he doing? He's disassembling the fence that a man had made 50 feet back from it, for one. For two, he's revealing actually a higher standard of morality. He did this in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when Jesus said, yeah, you you say it's wrong to commit adultery with a woman. He says, if you've even looked at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your what? In your heart. 
See, Jesus actually upped the ante for morality in his day. He actually said, you're not even, you're, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which to hear that in the culture would have been exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? How could we possibly be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees? Because the scribes and the Pharisees are sitting there scrubbing their hands while like a whitewashed tomb inside of their soul is death and decay. And Jesus is trying to clarify that. You know, we live in a very similar culture to this. We assume in our culture that humans are basically good and that it's, it's nature versus nurture, right? It's our culture that defiles us. It's people that are around us that defiles us. Here's the problem with that. It's wrong. It's not true. What defiles us? What defiles us? Well, according to Jesus, the toxic, sin-producing factory that sits within your chest, the human heart, is capable of producing massive amounts of evil. The fallen, listen to me, this is important. The fallen condition of man is not external, it is existential. It is something within you. And that's much harder to deal with, isn't it? Man, it's way easier to take a bath than it is to deal with these inner complexities of your heart that wants to do evil. And it's within all of us. It's within all of us. Jesus' point is that the human heart is a cesspool a cesspool of defiling bacteria that can produce a virus that, if allowed, will spread and destroy all of God's creation. Have you noticed that about sin? Have you noticed that? How a thought that exists within the contents of your heart can go from being a thought to being a desire and go from a desire to being an action and go from an action to being an addiction and go from an addiction to be a ruling component in your life. From a ruling component in your life, there's nothing there but death. You destroy your family, you destroy your wife, you destroy your husband, you destroy your kids, you destroy culture. Sin is the enemy. It's the enemy of the human condition. And where does it reside? In the heart of a human. Sam, this is depressing. I'm just telling you what Jesus says. Jesus it makes it very clear what the dilemma of the human species is. It's not a lack of intellectual understanding. It's not a lack of science or a lack of philosophy or a lack of anthropology. It's the human sickness of sin that resides within the human heart, that if allowed will actually come out and defile the entirety of a human being. It is this deep-seated nature of the human heart that is the human dilemma. The source of human evil is evil humans. And see, this is why it's such a problem when we have people telling us to repent of systems rather than to repent of sin. We're not a sinful people because of a system. We're a sinful people because we are sinners. Do you understand? We repent of our sin. Individually, that's the problem. I don't have time to go there, but Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul lays this out masterfully. The debauchery of the sinful heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The sin sickness. See, this is why Jesus was the cardiologist, because he came not just to heal. He came not just to die on the cross. He came to die on the cross in order to fix the condition of the human heart. He was the cardiologist, and he saw the broken condition of our heart. Now, this text, I'll just be honest, and it ends right there. Uh, this text is pretty hopeless, isn't it? Jesus is like, you guys are hypocrites, and just so everybody else knows, your heart is such a nuclear reactor of sin and defilement that it's basically going to consume you and defile you. Peace. Wow, encouraging, Jesus. Really, thank you. Appreciate that. 
What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Well, we've talked about the sickness. We've talked about the source of sickness. Now let's talk about the solution. See, the New Testament doesn't leave us hanging. And Jesus actually doesn't either because Jesus had a lot more to say than just this. He does put his finger like a good doctor. He puts his finger on the problem, and then he, of course, brings in the solution. I want to give you guys three answers to the problem of the dilemma of man's sinful heart. I'll give them to you all up front, and then we'll go back through them. Number one, you need to let God's word sift you. Number two, you need to let God's word wash you. And number three, you need to let God's word have you. You need to let God's word sift you, wash you, have you. Number one, let God's word sift you. Uh, It's incredible, our ability as human beings to lie to ourselves. You know you lie to yourself all the time and you let yourself do it to yourself? You know you tell yourself stories all the time and you start to believe them? When I was a kid, I lied so much, I started to forget what was true. When I was a kid, I, I was always trying to impress my friends, and I'd tell them these big, fanciful stories about things that I had done. And you know what's funny is sometimes even as an adult now um, that, that, that is a retired liar, I, um, uh, I, I look back, and I t- I'll start telling somebody this story about this thing that happened with a kid, and I have to stop myself, and I was like, wait a minute. I don't think that really happened. That was something I told my, my seventh-grade friends, and it started to become reality. Before you can have uh, the solution to your toxic, broken, sinful heart, you have to start by reality being imported into your false reality that you've told yourself and that you've been told by others. And so the call here is to let the word of God sit atop of the lies that you've been told and the lies that you've told yourself and begin the process of sifting what is true and what is not true. See, that's what Jesus is doing right now in this this interaction with the Pharisees. They're coming with all of these traditions which are twisting God's word, and Jesus is bringing it back to what? What is he bringing it back to? God's word. God's word. God's word. Because this doesn't change. This roots us, it anchors us, and it keeps us from lying to ourselves. Satan is the father of lies. Oftentimes, he doesn't have to lie to us because our hearts already do. And when he comes along and it just confirms what our hearts are already telling us that's not true. God's word needs to anchor us. The treatment of the human condition begins with the light of God's word exposing the depth of our true heart sickness. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And that's why he says in John chapter 3, this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's exactly what's happening in our text between Jesus and the Pharisees. He's exposing them. He's exposing their hypocrisy. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we need to let God's word sift us. We need to submit ourselves to the, cate- uh, the cardiological diagnosis of God's word every day. You need to read God's word and you need to let God's word read you. You need to get into God's word and you need to let God's word get into you because this is going to sift you. It's going to unearth the lies that you tell you and it's going to unearth the lies that culture is telling you. You are being lied to every five seconds by culture. It's no surprise, right? Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. Um, Yeah, I'm pretty sure that all of the media and all of the movies that we watch are doing exactly what their father, the devil, does, and that is lie constantly. So I'm not saying throw your TV in the garbage. I'm saying read your Bible, okay? Read your Bible so that you know what the truth is, and the truth can expose the lies. 
both that you've believed and both the lies that you've told yourself. We need the word of God to separate our truth from traditions, our self-deception from our self-righteousness, our lip service from our true heart worship. Number two, you need to let God's word wash you. Not only do you need to let God's word sift you, you need to let God's word wash you. Here's why the gospel is such good news. So we had a car, a minivan. Uh, yes, I know, a minivan. Uh, this, 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 Honda, this Honda Odyssey, <clears throat> thought we were going to get another 100,000 miles of it. The other day, we're driving on the freeway, and it died. And I don't just mean the battery. Like, it died, right? Like, you can tell the difference. We're driving along, and it's like, clunk. I'm like, whoa, like, let's, everything's gone. What happened? So call the tow truck, get my family loaded up. My mom come in, comes and helps get the dog, everything, you know. And, and, and we take it to Kelly's Automotive, and they call me about half an hour later, and they said, yeah, you know, we opened the hood. We immediately knew what, what happened. I said, what happened? They said, your timing belt broke. I was like, ah, okay, well, how much is that going to cost? Well, the way in which it broke probably damaged your engine, which means you need a whole new engine, man. I'm like, ah, oh. car's done. Here's the reality. I don't just need a tune-up. I need a whole new engine. This car is beyond a tune-up, right? Either I need a whole new engine or I need a whole new car. The reality of our text should lead you to a point where God's word has clarified the reality of your situation in such a way that you go, I don't just need a tune-up. I need a whole new car. The tune-up days are done. Culture will tell you, no, you just need a tune-up. Little self-help, read this book, read that book, go to this class, take that class. You can fix, we can fix this thing. Humanity's not doomed. We, there's hope for humanity. People are basically good. No, we're not. Tune-ups are gone. You need a whole new engine. And that's the gospel, by the way. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came so that you get a whole new engine. It's called a new heart. You are born again. With a whole new set of desires, the Spirit of God now lives within you. This was always God's plan of salvation. Ezekiel 36, 26, God says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a moldable heart, a new heart. This is what Jesus was saying in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He's saying, hey, Nicodemus, your righteousness is good for nothing. Throw it in the garbage. What you really need is you need to be born, what? Again. You need a whole new heart, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is confused by this. He says, how am I going to climb back into my mother's womb? <laughs> Don't think about that one too long, right? Uh, what, how do I do that? How do I do that? And Jesus is like, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand? Why does he say that to Nicodemus? Because he should have read his Bible and saw that God's plan of salvation was always a new engine. It was always to give and import a new heart, a born-again heart, not a tune-up, whole new car. Are you with me? This was the idea. This is what Jesus was talking about to Nicodemus. This is what Paul says in Titus 3.5. He said, he saved us not because of our works done by righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. It's an important theological word. And the renewal of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. See, when Jesus punctured death on the cross in resurrection, he became the firstborn of a new humanity that, is, that begins with the new heart that you get when you're born again. You become part of his new ultimate reality, his new eternal reality. You become part of his new eternal kingdom with your new eternal heart that desires to please God. Now, Maybe you're saying, Sam, how come I still like sin? And there's an answer for that, and it's my third point. The answer for that is that you need to let God's word have you. You need to let God's word sort you. You need to let God's word wash you, and you need to let God's word have you. Here's the reality. God imports a new heart into you with new desires, and I think about it like this. He sets it underneath our old heart where now our deepest desire is to honor him. When you're a believer, your deepest desire is to be faithful to him, to honor him. But you still have these more shallow flesh. The Bible calls it the flesh. These more carnal, animalistic desires for for instant gratification and selfishness. The sinful heart still lives within you. And the goal of sanctification, the goal of growing up into Christ is that the heart God gave you would begin to overtake your heart of flesh that you would begin to love to serve the Lord more than to serve your flesh. It's a process that God is working out. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians 5, 16 says, But I say, Paul says, but walk by the Spirit. That is, walk in the new heart. Walk controlled by the Spirit of God. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desire of the spirit is against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things, listen, that you want to do. Because when you're a born-again believer, you want to honor the Lord. That's why you can't sin the way you used to before you were a Christian. Have you noticed that? You ever try? Like, man, this was way more fun before I got saved. Now I just feel terrible because you don't really want that anymore. You've gotten a new heart. And the Spirit of God is fleshing that out, working that out, working out your salvation. Verse 18, but you are led by the Spirit, not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives a very similar list to the one Jesus gave. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Listen, but the fruit of the Spirit, that is the part of you that God is at work at and controlling and producing life through, is what? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and the desires, and we live by the Spirit. That is the life of the believer. So stepping back now, what's the good news? The good news is that you know the problem with humanity. The good news is when your friend asks you, how could somebody possibly take a gun and walk into a school and blow away children? You can say, you know, that absolutely devastates God's heart. And, and, and there's a reason for that. And God actually loved us enough to send his son to tell us the reason for that. The reason is that within the heart of a human being exists great good, but also capacity for such evil. So much so that humanity needs an entire engine rebuilt. 
And that person that thought that perhaps what he needed in life was to go in and take the life of another, what he truly needs is Jesus. What he truly needs is the gospel. What he truly needs is to be born again. And what is true of an individual human is true of the world. And that is the world needs a new engine. The world will not carry sin into the next. It must be dealt with. You know, the gospel is the only real answer to the problem we see in the world. Because the gospel is the only answer. Gospel just means good news. It's the only good news that actually digs deep enough to deal with the real systemic issues of humanity. Humanity's problem is so much deeper than cultural or societal norms. So much deeper than, than, than whatever our world is saying it is. It's so deep that Jesus had to come into his creation and fix it from the inside out by starting an entirely new humanity so that you and I who believe in Christ are given a new heart and his spirit now lives within us and we begin this work of building his kingdom. That's really good news, isn't it? God didn't leave you with a heart that was broken. He came in and gave you a new one. It's really good news. So what? We know what the real problem is. We know what the real answer is. Now what? Now we rejoice that we are not only undefiled. Listen to me, Christian. You're not defiled anymore. I don't care what inner Pharisee comes out. I don't care what Pharisee walks up to you and says, hey, why aren't you doing this? You preach the gospel to yourself and say, actually, I am made whole. I am righteous because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to me. So don't tell me about washing my hands in a certain way. Don't tell me about wearing my hat in church. You'd be kind, you'd be gracious, you'd be respectful, and then you say, you know what, the gospel tells me this, that it's the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to me. It's his account, not some stupid fist-handed washing that some old guy wrote down so that you have to do it. No, thank you. The systems, the religious systems of man cannot save you. All they do is bind you. All they do is create a yoke of bondage. The gospel frees you. So we rejoice in the new heart that we have the truth, we have the spirit, and it's at work in us. And we stop obsessing about the externals and let God consider the heart. God certainly takes sin seriously, but he's more concerned about the why within your heart. And we stand firm in our culture and we continue to hold to this. Guys, culture is changing so fast. Have you noticed? Have you noticed it? It's changing so fast. I mean, I don't even know how we're supposed to keep up. This doesn't change. Read this. Read it. Believe it. Know it. Study it. And don't let culture shape your thinking because it's wrong. God's word is true. It's living. Amen? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this interaction that Mark wrote down for us between Jesus, you, and these Pharisees. Thank you, Jesus, for your teaching that you gave to the crowd and that we got to read about, about the reality of evil, where it comes from. And Lord, we just know the propensity still within our heart, within our self, within our flesh for human evil. And we ask that your spirit would overtake that, that we would grow to not gratify the flesh, but to walk by the spirit. Lord, I pray for Philippi Church, that you would keep them, that you would guard them in a time of great evil and in a time where culture is so confused and where at a time where we have cultural religious systems that are trying to impose those things on us, that we would walk in the freedom of the gospel, that we would be lights in the darkness. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.